and take the offering. Well, at the risk of stating the obvious, I'm glad you're here this morning. Because this morning we, we start and embark on a new journey together. As over the next several weeks, we're going to look at the first three chapters of Genesis. And my goal as a, as a, as a community is that actually each fall we'll come back to Genesis. So this, this fall, Genesis 1 through 3, probably next fall, Genesis 4 through 11, and then so on and so forth. But Genesis is, is, is great in the sense of that it's, it's, the, it's the beginning, right? And we have this, this, this beginning of the Bible. The nice thing is that it's super easy to find, Right? There's a lot of books of the Bible that we might go through that are hard to find, but this one's super easy to find. And if you ever wanted, at one point said, I'm going to read through the Bible. You go, I'm going to read through the Bible. And you just said, I'm going to make a commitment. I'm going to read through the Bible. A lot of times when people do that, they start where they even start with most books, which is Genesis chapter 1. Like, chapter 1, verse 1. Like, this, that's where we're going to start. And you start reading through the Bible. You track through Genesis. Like, all right, I can, I can do this. And then you get to Exodus. Like, all right. And then somewhere around Deuteronomy to go, okay, all right. Um, maybe I should rethink this. Because Deuteronomy, like, good night. It reads like a legal document. And I go, well, it's because it, it is a legal document. Uh, it's called you know, Deuteronomy, the law. And so it reads like a legal document. And so but you, maybe you started with Genesis, you track with Genesis, and, uh, and I think it's, it's a good place to start. And, and really because I think that when we look at Genesis, I go, because beginnings matter. So why would we look here? We go, well, because beginnings matter. You know, they, they, they really do matter. You think about even about arguments that are made about our country. And a lot of times we go back to the beginning, our forefathers why? Because beginnings matter. Our forefathers, this is what they would have wanted. This is what they set up. We go back to the, the Declaration of Independence, these sorts of things. Why? Because beginnings matter. Because somehow beginnings, if you want to know where you're at, you need to know where you have come from and where you are going, right? Where's, where, where's the destination? If you want to be able to locate yourself, you think about like relationships, beginnings matter, right? Sometimes you'll meet somebody new, maybe a couple. One of the first things you'll ask them is, how'd you guys meet? How'd you guys meet? Why? Because beginnings matter. Beginnings will tell you something. Beginnings are a story. And what we get with Genesis is the beginning. And we get a story. And we cover Genesis because beginnings matter. And as we embark on this, I will say that we are probably embarking on some of the most interesting and yet controversial chapters of the Bible. There's so much has been said and written. I mean, I've got books upon books right now on Genesis, more than I can read (laughs) in a week. Because so much has been written. And there's so much that's interesting, so much that is controversial. And so I wanted to set sort of a, a couple of ground rules as we embark on Genesis. And the first ground rule, I think, is that it's not science versus the Bible, right? Sometimes people think that's what it is. Oh, it's science be the Bible. And these two, these two juggernauts are, are button heads. I go, no, no, not really. At best, or I guess at worst, it might be a scientist versus the Bible, 
right? Somebody who wants to prove the Bible to be inaccurate. They might try to do that with science. Or it might even be a group of scientists versus the Bible. But it's not science versus the Bible. If science is just the understanding of the natural world, then I would say then the natural world would never contradict the creator, the creator of the natural world. Now, what I would say, though, is that what I want to do is I want to look at I want to look at what what the, the, the world looks like with with through the lens of God. And so what, it, what if science is going to say, I want to understand the natural world, I'd go, that's good, that's good, but I'm always going to look at the natural world through a supernatural lens. Why? Because I, don't, I believe that there's more to this world than just what is the natural world. And so I don't think it's necessarily science be the Bible. I think that God is the creator of the natural world, but the thing is that God is not... He does, he does not force himself to be submitted to that natural world. Does that make sense? He is supernatural. He is over and above all of that. And God can break the rules if he wants to. You can't break the rules of gravity. It doesn't work like that. You can't just decide one day, you know what, I gave gravity a shot, don't want to do it anymore, and I'm done with gravity. You don't get to do that, right? You have to submit to it. You have to submit to the law of physics and age and those sorts of things. And if you don't want to, it doesn't matter. It will force you into submission. But God is different. God is above that. He is over that. He is beyond that. And where I would say, where, where if science or the natural world is to contradict, or not it contradicts, or is to come up against the supernatural world or what the Bible teaches us, then I go, well, absolutely, the Bible wins. And I think the best example we get this is anytime the Bible covers any sort of miracle where the scientists would say, that's not possible. It's not possible. I go, yep, I know, crazy. It's not possible. And that does not happen. I go, I know, crazy, until it does, right? That's what makes it so miraculous. For a long time, what what some, kind of as we were going through modernism, some people would say we're in postmodernism now or beyond postmodernism, so post-postmodernism, whatever. But with modernism, one of the things that modernism tried to do was to bring scientific explanations to all of the miracles of the Bible. Like ways in which Jesus could have walked on water. And they, they borderline ridiculous. Like, you know, well, maybe, well, Jesus was walking on water, but there were like two fish underneath him, like lifting him up. I go, okay. Like, I <laughs> that doesn't, like, to me, I mean, I, I get it. I get what you're trying to do. But, but I think if God is God, and I think this is what we're going to get to in Genesis. If God is God, if God really is God, he gets to do whatever he wants, whenever he wants. And although he sets the natural laws, if he would like to step outside of those or operate outside of those or within those, he gets to do that. I mean, think about like the Lazarus raising from the dead. You go, well, well people don't just raise from the dead. I go, I know, it's crazy. That's why we have the stories. And so what we're not going to do is we're not going to pit the science versus the Bible and we're not going to say, oh, look at the Bible says this and science says this. How ridiculous. No. We say there's a natural world, but there's a natural above and beyond the natural world is a supernatural world that we believe in. And let us not forget that. The other thing that I really want to say is that uh, we are going to let Genesis answer the questions that Genesis is trying to answer. Okay? 
So we're going to let Genesis answer the questions that Genesis is trying to answer. I think a lot of times when the Bible breaks down, I don't, well, I don't think the Bible breaks down, but when people perceive that it breaks down, is when people try to make the Bible say things or answer questions, it doesn't seem to be that concerned with. Is that any, that we, we see this with Jesus. Jesus, when he's healing uh, the, the, the disciples, they all come across this blind guy, and they say, Jesus, why is this guy blind? Is it his parents? Because his parents sinned or because he sinned? And Jesus, I'm paraphrasing now, Jesus is saying, you're asking, you're asking the wrong question. It's actually neither him, his parents' sin or his sin, actually. But there's actually a third option that you didn't even think about, and it's that God would be glorified today. May you see. See, I think sometimes what we do is we, we force the Bible to answer questions it doesn't seem to be that concerned with. And if what we're trying to do with the Bible is answer questions it doesn't seem to be concerned with, I think the, the conclusion is then maybe we are a- asking the wrong questions. And so we're going to let the Bible speak to what the Bible speaks to. And with that being said is that the Bible is not equally clear on all things. I think sometimes we would like to think that, oh, the Bible's equally clear on everything. I go, no, it's just not true. It's not equally clear on all things. Some things it's very clear on. Other things, I'm just speaking honestly, other things it's, it's, it can be a little more ambiguous about, a little more confusing. And you get that, yeah? You've read the Bible at times. You go, yeah, no, I get that. So the Bible's not equally clear on all things, nor does the Bible talk about things with, with equal uh, frequency. So the Bible may say something a hundred times. It may speak about something a hundred times. But then it may also only mention something else one other time. And sometimes with that frequency, I go, that means that the, the hundred times is probably more important and clearer than the one thing, the one time he said that was a little bit ambiguous. One of my jobs, I think, as a preacher is to say what the Bible says. And not to say more than it says, and not to say less than it says. And I think there's a lot of breakdown in preaching and in teaching when people try to take that which God said is ambiguous and make it absolutely clear. I think that's ambiguous. No, 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 not ambiguous, absolutely clear, 100%. I don't know. But there's a problem on the other end of the spectrum where the Bible says that something is absolutely clear, and then the preacher says, well, that's a little bit ambiguous. I mean, well, that's not ambiguous. I think God shot pretty straight right there. And the same thing happens with the frequency. Maybe something that, that the Bible says once or twice dominates the preaching. I, go, I mean, God said, he talked about that two, three, two, three times. Why, why are you spending six, seven, eight months out of the year on that topic? But the same thing happens on the other end of the spectrum. The Bible says something a lot, talks about it a lot, and it never seems to be mentioned in the pulpit. And so one of my jobs as a preacher is to speak with the frequency and the clarity in which God speaks with frequency and clarity. And that's going to be true, I think, probably more true for us in Genesis than maybe when we're embarking on other books of the Bible. So, with that, what I also want to say is speculation is a good thing. I love it when people want to, in, in good, healthy ways, speculate about things of the Bible. I wonder what God does. 
What do you think he meant by that? Like, I don't know. It's not clear. I know, but, but maybe it's this. You go, yeah, maybe it is. Or maybe it's this over here. I think that God is honored when we wrestle with what he says. And we, we speculate, but we speculate not. The problem is when we turn speculation into dogma, right? But when we speculate, and I like to say, when we speculate with grace, I think God is honored when we speculate with grace. I think God is honored when we wrestle with, like, what do you think this is? And how do you think this is? What was this like? I don't know. I mean, I imagine it's like this. Yeah, see, I imagine that a little differently. I imagined it like this. I think God is honored with those things. I think there's a reason why God has created some ambiguous places so that we could have great, wonderful, gracious conversations about what maybe he meant. The problem is these places of speculation, they go, well, speculation, but, but I'm going to turn into dogma. And if you don't believe what I believe about my speculation, then, then, then you just think that God lies. Like, whoa, 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 slow down. We'll actually get to one of those places this morning. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. I like it when people try to tell you how to find a book in the Bible. They're like, well, go to your table of the contents. This one you go, go to your table of contents and just turn a couple pages to the right and you're going to get there. Super easy. Chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. By the way, I think this is a summary statement of what's going to follow. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then two, then following is, let me tell you about what it looked like when he created the earth. And so this very thing is like, it's interesting. One of the things I like to do is I go, if this is the only verse that we have in the Bible, what would we know about God? In the beginning, he created, God created the heavens and the earth. Well, I think this tells us something. As the Bible opens up, who's there? God. Nothing else. It's God. God was prior to the, the beginning. God is, we believe God is eternal outside of time. Not only is God outside of the natural laws, God is outside of time. He's eternal. So in the beginning, there was God, which tells us something. And what it te- one of the things it tells us is that this book and the things that are going to flow out of this and from this moment are theocentric, are God-centered, that the Bible is God-centered. It's not anthropocentric, right? Which is not man-centered. I think a lot of times what we think about God's story is that it's, it's man-centered. It's humanity-centered. It's about us. It revolves around us. And I go, no, the, the first verse of the Bible tells us that that's not true. This is God's story. I love the idea that history, this works in English, not in other languages, but history is his story. It's unfolding. It started in the way in which he designed it. It's moving along, as we'll find out. It's moving along, not outside of his sovereign control. And it's going to reach its desired end. And so we learn that this is a, a book. You know, one of the, the catchy things is sometimes, you maybe you've heard it, that the Bible, the Bible, B-I-B-L-E, it stands for uh, basic instructions before leaving earth. I like that. It's catchy. Uh, but the problem is, I go, that's not the, that's not the purpose of the Bible. 
The purpose of the Bible is not just to teach us how to live. It does that. It accomplishes that, right? But that's not the purpose of the Bible. The purpose of the Bible, I believe, is God's self-revelation about himself. God says, I want to reveal something about me, and I want to reveal a lot of things about me. Here's the story. Here's my self-revelation. And the first thing we find out about in the self-revelation is that not only is this whole thing about him, but that he's a creator, that he's a God who creates. Now, that's, that's, a, that's a big deal. And what actually Romans tells us, Romans, as, as Paul's writing in the book of Romans, what he tells us about creation he goes that God has revealed himself, not just through his word, but God has revealed himself through his creation. That you could look at the created world and you would know something about God. That you could look around you and, and you could come, we call this general revelation. You could look around and see, look at creation and see how has God revealed himself. Driving through the Grand Canyon, Yosemite, going through all of God's great creation. What does this tell us about God? I think it tells us a lot of things about God. I think it tells us that God is a big God. It tells us that God gets beauty. You know, we've done a, we've done a lot in modernism and post to, to create art and to create big, beautiful things. But I go, man, all of that seems really sort of trite when you go to Yosemite, the Grand Canyon, Glacier National Park. And I'm just talking about sort of the west part of the United States. That God gets beauty. And not only does he get beauty, but he gets the diversity of beauty. Right? It's not like God says, oh, we want to do something beautiful. Uh, mountains are beautiful. So every time God wants to do something beautiful, he just puts a mountain there. Oh, I want to do something beautiful. Mountain. Mountain or waterfall. Those are the two beautiful things. But actually, a mountain is beautiful. But a mountain is beautiful different than a canyon is beautiful. A desert has a different beauty than the rainforest has a beauty. And you would say, well, which one's more beautiful? Yosemite or the Grand Canyon? Or, or Yellowstone? You go, they're just, they're different. And yet both Beautiful. And so does, not only does God in his creation, what not only does it teach us is that he's a God who is big, who's a God who gets the beauty and diversity, but he's a God about power. When we think about the power of creation. We talk about, about even something like Yosemite being carved out by, by slow-moving glaciers. Power that we cannot replicate. Now, this is what's interesting is that in, in Romans, what, what Paul says is Paul says, you should be able to look at creation and get all of this. And what I love about that is as science has advanced, we have learned more. I mean, they could have walked by Mount Everest and go, man, God's a big God. God is a big God. But I go, but see, here's the thing. You don't, you don't even know the half of it. You look at Everest and you think, big God. But then like, a few thousand years from now, we're going to have pictures from outer space, from the far reaches of the galaxy. And it's going to crush what Mount Everest looks like. God is much larger than we know. 
I was like, I mean, not that they could even, everything's like a guesstimation, right? But they're saying that, 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 the, that the, the universe is, is something like nine, 90 billion light years across. You go, whoa. This God, as we keep on finding out, and I think as science keeps on teaching us and telling us, is that this God is far larger than we could ever have imagined. I mean, I, I see some of those pictures and just, it just, I just, my, my mind melts. But here's the crazy thing about creation. Is that not only has God more, more vast than we ever know through his creations revealed to us, but he's more intricate than we ever knew before as well. I mean, I think about like Psalm 139, where, where the psalmist there, he says, basically, he says, God, you have, you have seen me in the womb and you have woven my body parts together. Okay, that's poetic. That's poetic. And I'm not sure, I mean, so it's poetry, right? So we don't want to take it necessarily literally, but what does the psalmist mean? Does he mean like God's got like a box of arms up there? He's like, so I took an arm out of this box and I, I sewed it into the torso from this box, right? But I go, see, you're, you're amazed at God's beauty and God's creation within the womb because he wove the body parts together. But it's actually more intricate than that. Far more intricate than that. That almost every cell in your body creates the DNA, the code that which makes up your body. I mean, from the, from the, the, the minuscule is directing the larger. I mean, God is more, the, the, the closer we look in through a microscope and a telescope, the more we look, the more fascinated we are by God's creation. God is more vast and, and big and powerful than we would ever know, and he's even more concerned and intricate than we ever have known, and we are continuing to learn. And so what we find here is that God is a, a creator God. The story's about him, and the creation flows from him. Verse 2. That was verse 1. <laughs> There's a lot here, right? We could spend, spend all day on just verse 1, verse 2, verse 2. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Let me read that again. The earth was without form and void. It was like a, a, like a barren desert would be like a literal, maybe a literal translation there. A bear, it was barrenness, deserted. And darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And so like I said, I think Genesis 1, 1 is the introduction to all that is going to flow out of that. God created the heavens and earth. And what we're going to see now is a narrowing. So we're going to see an ordering, an ordering out of chaos. We're going to see then a narrowing from the general to the specific. God created the heavens and earth. Okay, now let me tell you about the earth. And let me tell you about the formation of the earth. Now let me tell you about the filling of the earth. Birds, fish. Now let me talk about the animals of the earth. Now we're going to talk about humanity. And then the story's going to flow about humanity. See, I think a lot of times we go, well, well, let's go back to the heavens. Like, nope, once again, Genesis 1 doesn't say a lot about the heavens. It just says that they were created. Well, how were they populated? It doesn't tell us. Well, who's up there? Doesn't actually, Genesis 1 doesn't even tell us that. It just says that they were created. Heaven and earth. Now we're going to talk about the earth. Now we're going to talk about the formation of the earth. Now we're going to talk about the filling of the earth, the animals, humanity. And then after Genesis 3, really the story flows out of humanity. 
You see how he's, 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 he's creating, he's, he's forming, he's ordering, and then he's narrowing the story. And he says that the face, says that God was over. The face of the deep, the darkness, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. I think here we see the Trinity, by the way. It's interesting in verse 1, going back to verse 1, is that the word for God is Elohim. El is the, pl- is the singular for in Hebrew for God. Elohim is the plural. And so it's interesting because in, in, in Genesis 1.1, 1, 1, it says Elohim, God, plural, created, but does the singular. And so it's very interesting, actually, in the verse, verse I think is, it points to some of the Trinity because it says the plurality of God, singular, then, then creates. And then here we see the Spirit of God over the face. And what we find later, later, much later on in John chapter 1, 1, is that the Word of God was there. Jesus. It says, in the beginning, John 1, by the way, starts just like Genesis starts. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. And, and everything came into creation through Him. And so what we find, we find there here, but this is interesting because the Spirit of God is over the darkness. So in the opening chapter, in the opening verses, we find that God is the creator God, the eternal God, and we find that he is the God who is over the darkness. I think we often forget that God is the God who is over the darkness. His spirit hovering over the darkness. And what does he do with that darkness? Well, this is what we find out in verse 3 through 5. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. And God called the day, it's called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. Let me read that again. And God said, let there be light. First time we hear God speak, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night and there was evening and there was morning the first day. God said, and we're going to see this by the way, there's going to be a pattern in Genesis chapter 1. God said and it was so. By the word of God, he said this and it was so. And I love that. We talked actually a little bit at the, the men's retreat about this idea that when we talk about the Word of God, what is the Word of God? You go, well, we think the Word of the God is it's the Bible, right? You go, you're right. It is the Bible. It's what God says. You go, it is what He says. But we also find out in the Bible that it's the, the Word of God also re- relates to His creation, like the way He creates. It's what he, it's what he does. It's the Word of God, so He says, and then it just happens. It was so. But then John chapter 1 tells us that the Word of God... It's Jesus. And so you go, so which one is it? Is it? Is the word of God in reference to what he says? Is it in reference to what he does? Or is it in reference to who he is? I think the obvious answer is yes, you're right. Because there is, because God is a God of integrity, there is no separation between what he says, what he does, and then who he is. 
And I think one of the places we see this most clearly is in Genesis. It's out of his character of who he is that he's revealing himself, he's creating, he's saying, and it's happening. And then he's over the darkness, hovering over the darkness. He sees that. He says, let there be light. There's light. And he calls the light out of the darkness. He says, I'm going to call this light day. The darkness I'm going to call night. And then it tells us there was evening, there was morning, the first day. To which raises the big question, right? What does he mean by day here? Day? What's day mean? You go, well, once again, we're going to let the Bible speak to what the Bible speaks to. And I'm going to submit to you that it was not the author's intention here to answer our modern question about the age of the earth. Okay? I don't think when, when I think Moses is, 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 is writing this, I don't think when Moses is writing Genesis chapter 1, he goes, well, you know what? In about 3,500 years from now, they're going to have a question about the age of the earth, about how old the earth is. And so we're going to solve that problem right now. And I don't think that's what he's doing here. And I don't think that's what's happening here. You know, and I think once again, is, is if we're trying to face, uh, force Genesis chapter 1 to give us the age of the earth, I think we're trying to make it answer a question it doesn't seem to be all that concerned with. I once heard somebody say, they said, um, <laughs> they said, if the Bible, sorry, if, if the world wasn't created in six literal 24-hour days, then Jesus didn't die on the cross. I was like, whoa, that's a huge jump. That's a big, big jump. And I go, but I get what you're saying, right? If we can't trust what it says in Genesis 1, how can we trust what it says in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? To which I would agree. But once again, I would go back to the frequency and clarity the Bible speaks much more clearly and frequently about Jesus dying on the cross. And it speaks less clearly and frequently about the days of creation. And what I think here is that we have to graciously leave room for what we would say is old earth and the new earth. In other words, that God used six literal 24-hour days to create, and also he took a really long time to create. I think we have to leave room for both, because I think at some level, and we could talk more about this, you can push me later, it's fine. I think the scriptures leave room for both. But what I would say with that as a caveat is that God can do either one, right? So my whole thing is like, even with old earth people, I'm like, but God, if God wanted to, God could create in six 24-hour literal days. You have to believe that. In fact, actually, not only do you have to believe that, you have to believe that God didn't even need six 24-hour literal days to create. It's not like God was up there as a planner going like, okay, that's a big day. I can't do all that in one day. So we're going to we're gonna have to do this at least in two days. Uh, no, now that I'm thinking about more of this, now this is going to be probably, uh, I booked it all out, this is a six-day process. We have to believe that God, if God is God and God gets to do whatever he wants to do, he actually doesn't even need six days. He could just, and not only just create in like a snap, but could create 
create us in the place where we're currently sitting with memories of things that have already happened. He could create us here. But at the same time, I say, but the argument, the other side is, what if God wanted to take millions of years? Because what is time to an eternal God? And what if God wanted to take his time to, to carve out the valleys? Yeah. Yeah, I, I think we have to graciously leave room for both, saying that God can do whatever God wants to do. And if he wanted to take six 24-hour days, he can do that. And if he wanted to take a really long time, he could do that too. As long as we still have God over the process and God interacting and, and directing the creation. I'll probably get to the more of that next week. And I think what happens here, this is a good example of what happens. We read a verse like that and we go, yeah, what does he mean by day though? That's what I want to know. What does he mean by day? And I go, here's the problem. See, this is exactly what happens. We miss what it just said. That he said, let there be light. Let there be light and there was light. And he saw the light, that the light was good. God separated out the light from the darkness. God, God was over the darkness and said, "This no, 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 not good, not good. We need some light. God said, let there be light. There was light, and then God called the light, right? It says he called the light good, and then he separated out the light from the dark. We read a verse like that, and our question is, what does he mean by day? It's like, wait, 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 that's, that's your question? He's talking about separating out light and darkness, and that's what you walk away with? I mean, God is the creator of all things. He was over the darkness and then creates light. And by the way, interestingly enough, just to mess with you a little bit, this isn't the sun. We don't get the sun until the fourth day. What? Yeah. And actually, I think that here, Genesis 1 is super revolutionary, even among its modern pagan religions of the time, to say that the great light is not the sun. We're going to have light and we're going to have darkness. Oh, and by the way, a few days later, we're going to get, we're going to get the sun. What? And so what we see here is this, this light. It's not the primary, I'm sorry, the sun is not the primary, the ultimate light. It's that there's a light that is more primary and more ultimate We know that Jesus is eternal. It's interesting then when we see this, we read this, that God is over the darkness. God is over the darkness. It says, let there be light, and then separates out the light and the darkness. Then the New Testament comes along. And Jesus starts talking about some things of like, we need to be born again or almost 
this idea of recreated. Paul says, uses the terminology in, in 2 Corinthians, you are now new creations. So in other words, what Jesus isn't doing, Jesus isn't plussing us up. Actually, what Jesus is doing is, is he, he's recreating us. And by the way, the, the journey from the womb into to the world is the journey from the darkness, right? The darkness of the womb into the light of the world. And so this happened when you were born, literally when you were born from darkness into light. And then what Jesus says is that you need to be recreated. And the journey of the recreation looks like your birth, which actually it echoes back to Genesis 1 when there is darkness and I created light and the light and separated out the light from the darkness. That this isn't a creation of just what God did and the story of what he did, but it's the story of what he does. He's always separating out the light from the darkness. Don't believe that's true? Of course you do. It's a trick question, by the way. I'm taking one last place this morning. This is in Colossians chapter 1, verse 13. He, referring to God the Father, He has delivered us from where? The domain of darkness. And transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, the light of the world. He has, he has taken us out of darkness and brought us into the light of the Son. Sound familiar? in whom we have redemption for the forgiveness of sins. He, now referring to Jesus, the Son, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him, for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. I love Colossians because Colossians goes, let me, let me talk about this recreation. It's not just about what God did, but about what he does. Not just that God created, but that God creates and then recreates. And in this recreation, it echoes creation, which is he's calling you out of the darkness, separating it out into the light. Oh, and by the way, with Jesus, all things were created through him and for him. Creation's not about you. It's about Jesus. It's not by you. It's by Jesus. It was all created. He goes, everything, everything, all the, all the thrones, all the, the nations that have come and gone, all of it's been created through him, by him. And I think the thing that we forget today is that he's the one who holds all things together. Not only did he create and set it on its path, but he's the one that is holding the whole thing together. He created, and then he sustained and will continue to sustain his creation. The journey of the Christian is the journey from the light, sorry, from the darkness into the light. 
that God is continually calling you in the places of your life, both for the purpose of salvation and then once within salvation in other, other places, but he's calling you from the darkness into the light. And I think if you are, are a Christian, if you're not a Christian, that's your first journey, is to in faith with Christ. The ultimate journey from, from darkness to light. If you are a Christian, as we look at Genesis 1, chapter 1 through verses 1 through 5, is that not only is God the creator of God, but you need to remember that he's the one holding it all together. He brings order out of chaos. And he does that on a global scale. And he does that on a, like, a very personal scale. God is looking to bring order out of your chaos because it's what he does. And not only is it what he does, but then he's the one who holds the whole thing together. I think largely as Christians, we have been forgetting this. We look at our world and we go, well, well, it's all falling apart. And go, well, maybe, but it'll never fall apart beyond Jesus' ability to hold it together. The only way for it to truly, truly follow, all fall apart is for Jesus to let it all go, and he hasn't done that. Why? Because he's the one who's created it, he's the one who was created for, and he is the one who sustains it. And that was true in Genesis 1-1, that's true in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and that's true in Revelation. And by the way, we're somewhere between Genesis and Revelation, which means it's true for us today. May your journey be the journey where God separates out the light from the darkness. And may you realize that out of your chaos, God is looking to bring order, and an order that he is the one that holds together. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you that you are the creator God, that you are a good creator God. We thank you that you are supernatural. You're not bound by, by nature. You're not bound by your creation, although you get it, you understand it, you stepped into it. You abided by it, but are not submitted to it. And so we thank you. God, we pray that you would bring order in our places of chaos. We pray that you would bring light to the areas of darkness, that you would separate that out in our lives. And we pray, Jesus, that you are the one that holds it together. We thank you that you didn't just set creation on its path and, and then tell it that you'll check back in in a few thousand years. But that you're active in it, continually, eternally, holding it together, sustaining it. And I pray that would be true for us on a global scale. I pray that it would be true for us on a national scale. I pray that would be true of our households and of us personally. That you would be the one that would sustain and order your creation. We love you, Jesus. We pray for these things in your name. Amen.